Welcome to a special episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Banking Circle at Money 2020 US, taking place at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, we're on the Banking Circle booth in the very busy expo, and I'm going to be chatting to a number of the speakers and attendees from the conference. And so we hope that through these short conversations, we'll be able to provide you with a real flavor and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed here at the event. So I'm thrilled to welcome Matt Oppenheimer, CEO and co-founder of Remitly. Matt, thanks so much for joining us because I know you're just about to uh, jump on the stage. You're going to be talking about whether crypto and digital currencies will render the remittance business obsolete. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about and also, do you think that's actually going to happen? Yeah. I'm excited about the panel, Russell, and excited about this podcast. I think that um, it is... Uh, crypto is a place that we, you know, a space we follow very closely. I think the punchline is it's unlikely to make remittances obsolete. Uh, and I'll be talking about uh, up on stage when we talk about um, crypto. It's rooting in what pain points our customers actually face, what drives cost in remittances, and then figuring out how crypto can be applied to potentially help drive down the cost. Uh, potentially as a partner to us in certain circumstances, but I think unlikely to, to make remittances obsolete. So tell us the main benefits of digital over traditional remittances then. Uh, once you do understand the costs of remittances, you see that a lot of costs are via physical brick and mortar um, cash in. Uh, and with our uh, app and broader digital remittances, what you can do is link a bank account or debit card uh, across over 150 countries now, and then um, send money back to, our customers send money back to their loved ones within minutes to billions of bank accounts, hundreds of millions of mobile wallets, hundreds of thousands of cash pickup locations. And because so much more of it is digitized, as you can guess, that takes money out of the system. And it also creates a much, much more convenient and seamless uh, experience for our customers. Do you think crypto can replace conventional money transfers? Yeah, I, I think crypto is a place, a space we followed, again, since uh, really even before founding the company when uh, Bitcoin came out in 2008. So I think it's been a common refrain of crypto making remittances obsolete or disrupting uh, remittances. But I think it's unlikely. Uh, I think there are, in, there are areas where we can partner potentially, and we have partnered with some crypto companies, uh, Meta and their Novi product, uh, Coinbase, a couple partnerships we've done. And uh, that can help accelerate the digitization. But I think it's unlikely to make remittances obsolete because I think like a lot of financial services, there's a lot of complexity, there's regulation, there's trust. And we're just not seeing the customer demand for it right now, given that it doesn't solve some of those problems. Okay, let's uh, learn a little bit more about Remitly. You're um, sending money now through over 150 countries. What are the challenges with setting up each of those countries and, and how do you go about doing that? Yeah, what we often say is uh, remittances are very much global, obviously, in nature, but yeah. customers are very local. And so uh, we've designed our, our product across thousands of corridors. And when I say corridor, it could be US, Mexico, it could be UK, Kenya, but it's between two countries as a corridor. Each one of those corridors has different costs for us of getting funds from customers, dispersing funds for customers. And the speed of that payment collection and disbursement varies. And so how that's done has to be done on a very, very, very local level. And the pricing, the merchandising, the packaging, all of that is much more complex than meets the eye. And that's just on the surface. Because then on a global level, you've got to solve the risk, the compliance, the fraud, the, the funds disbursement, all of the complexity that is inherent with international payments. And so what we're really proud of is not only have we solved some of those foundational elements, but then we've localized the product across those 150 countries that we serve. Uh, Matt, in the middle of uh, a very busy Money 2020, what's been your key takeaway this year? Uh, key takeaway is every year at Money 2020 is so different. And uh, last year I saw a lot about DeFi, a lot, of, a lot about crypto. This year, 
it feels like there's a lot of focus on IDV, a lot of focus on compliance, identity verification, a lot of focus on compliance. So um, excited about the themes this year and uh, it, it's humbling to say what's going to be the theme next year. Matt Oppenheim, uh, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with your talk. Thanks, Russell. So I'm now joined by Leslie Gilling, Chief uh, Growth Officer at Pagaya. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, it's great to be here. Should we start with a quick introduction to the company? So Pagaya is a B2B2C fintech company. Think of us as a network between our institutional investors and our bank partners, lending partners, and our job is to bring capital to the table and our AI capability to be able to find more consumers, whether they're deepening existing customer relationships with a partner like SoFi or Ally, um, or uh, and actually bringing like 20 to 30% more people into the mainstream economy with the ability for them to choose the products that they're looking for. I know that financial inclusion is a kind of big part of your mission at, at the company. Does making that part of the business model, does it, does it help or hurt success for you? It absolutely helps. I mean, when you think about First of all, it's just like diversity and inclusion. When you have a more diverse company, you have a more profitable company. It's really no different. Um, you know, we are a for-profit company. We started as an asset management company in 2016. We basically are able to bring more underserved people into the mainstream economy because they're getting missed today with FICO scores and underwriting platforms that are just old and aren't up to speed. And so we're able to actually find many more people that are credit worthy and actually bring them into the mainstream economy. So it really goes hand in hand. You know, we, are, we aren't a non-for-profit, we're a profit-making yeah. company. Uh, we just went public in June um, and we are, we are uh, profitable. Uh, one of the few SPACs that actually made it across the finish line um, and went public. But no, we see it very much uh, going hand in hand because there are a lot of people who deserve credit that just aren't getting it today because they're getting missed yeah. um, in the traditional underwriting platforms. So just, can you go into a little bit more detail then on how your technology actually, you know, you know achieves that, how, how, you, yeah. how you give those, you know, those consumers with lower credit scores yep. um, access to finance? Yeah, so think of our, our, um, our advanced models that we have, and we have a strategic partnership with TransUnion and also work um, with Experian. We have all FCRA, which is um, uh, compliant data, bank compliant data, that think about the FICO score. There's, a, there's thousands of variables behind a FICO score. So what our AI is able to do is, is we have 20 years of production data um, so that we can actually, instead of a, a bank or a lending institution leveraging a FICO score and maybe a few variables, we just have a lot more information in real time to be able to find people who today are getting missed. So we basically are leveraging a lot more of that data. Um, we have over 20, 16 million um, uh, data points in training in our um, AI platform. And, um, and we're able to work with our partners who uh, basically are unable to approve them and they send a decline to our through an API and in milliseconds we can come back to them with a recommendation to approve and then giving them you know, a line and the pricing um, that really matches the pricing that the, the company was already marketing. So it's a completely frictionless experience for the customer as well. And so we're just able to enable our partners to say yes more. So we are very much behind the scenes. We are, again, a, a business to business company. 
And so we enable our partners to be able to say yes to their consumers and really enable them to have more choice and access to lending that they came to apply in the first place. And I guess that all, because I was going to ask about that kind of limiting the risk, that all leads to that, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, we we have over 260 researchers. and uh, obviously a lot of data points that we're paying a lot attention day in, day out, just like they do in, in banks and other institutions from a um, underwriting perspective. Um, but we just have many more, many more data points. And, um, and because we have the, we're not relying just on the data, we have over 260 humans that are paying attention to trends and making sure that we can find all of those people who deserve credit. Um, but we're also managing the the, um, the the risk as well because we owe the investors who are on the other side of our network a return on an, on assets. So our technology is using the data, understanding that consumer in the moment who was declined by that institution, and we're able to bring an, um, pre-funded capital, which is another interesting part of our business model. We actually have institutional investors, uh, pension funds, private bank clients, uh, we we pre-fund the investor, and that way we um, our our technology is solving for a return on asset for investors, and then saying yes, helping our partners say yes to consumers, and literally we're inc- increasing on average 25 to 30 percent incremental originations for. Um, auto loans, personal loans, credit card, um, buy now, pay later. Um, so it's 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 really exciting. There's so much opportunity. Uh, sure, um, lots of technology, you know, involved there. Yeah. In terms of other current trends within the fintech space, is there anything that's kind of stood out for you at the moment? I think I think what is, and and we're kind of right in the heart of this, is that um, there's so much technology that can help with social change, whether it's healthcare or whether it's um, obviously financial services and enabling people to get seen more um, and just being able to leverage that data. And the the cool thing is that there's a lot of, you know, you think about all these institutions and, and new fintech companies, there's so much lending opportunity out there. What's exciting is that everything that's happening today is further enabling people to have choice and access. And so to me, that's really exciting. I I spent 31 years working for very large financial institutions and made the switch over to FinTech because I I got so excited about the model. Um, And there's many, many good people that work in banks every day, but because of the infrastructure, back-end infrastructure and acquisitions and the inability to really see a, a complete customer, they try really hard, but you just miss, and we're finding, you know, literally one out of four people who are good credit-worthy customers that are getting missed. Actually, our performance is market average performance. Um, you know, from a you know, pricing perspective, they were being declined, but actually even the way they perform on the back end um, is right in line with market averages. So we're bringing more people in with the same pricing, Main Street pricing, and they're performing uh, really well. Yeah, I think it's great what you're doing, just listening to how you're describing it all. I think it's fantastic. Um, got one final question yeah. for you. Here at Money 2020, what's been your kind of key takeaway so far from the event? That everybody is very hungry to do business. Um, uh, there's so much opportunity. It's very exciting to be, um, you know, at this time. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges. Um, but anytime that there's challenges, uh, there's opportunity that breeds from that. And 
there's so much collaboration and people are here to, to do business and grow. And so uh, it, it's, it's very exciting. You'll walk, I will walk out of here learning 30 things that I didn't know 72 hours ago. And that's why it's exciting to be here. Leslie Gillian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Russell. So I'm joined by uh, Dave Birch, Global Ambassador for Consult Hyperion. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. No, great to be here, Russell. Um, quick one line on your company. Uh, we're a specialist electronic transactions consultancy, so we advise some of the larger players on how to use new technologies. That was a quick line. Very good. Uh, right, your session yesterday um, explored the digital identity crisis. Uh, what were the key points that were raised? Yeah, so the Money 2020 people had a, a, a really interesting idea, which was that sometimes you need to look to the edges for innovation. And so they said, you know, like who has the problem handling cash? Well, it's the cannabis guys, so let's get there. And, and so they decided to have a session looking at um, gambling, adult services, uh, cannabis, that kind of thing, um, to look at look at you know what opportunities were there but also to look at what innovations are coming from that direction which is a, it was a really interesting session and they were kind enough to ask me to do the keynote and I said look a lot of the things that we see as being payment problems are in reality identity problems if you know who everybody is payments are really quite easy um, and so you know if we really want to make headway in some of these areas actually we need to deal with the identity crisis um, rather than muck about with Dogecoin or whatever was the, so that was the idea of the session. Um, there's something I want to focus on and that's digital and verification infrastructure. Yeah. Can you kind of just explain a little bit more well, about the what idea, that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. The idea is, um, in the, well not only in those sectors, but in the wider economy, we should be moving away from using people's personally identifiable information as part of transactions. And the simplest example everybody uses, of course, is there's a world of difference between me finding out whether you're over 18 or not, and me finding out your date of birth or your age. So verifiable credentials are the idea that you use modern cryptographic techniques to prove things about data, but not share the data. And, uh, and, and in some of those more sensitive areas, you can see why that's really important. But actually, you see the number of data breaches and hacks going on all the time. It would be better for everybody if companies weren't storing people's personal information. It's a kind of toxic waste. So, you know, if I send you my passport to prove that I'm over 18, sooner or later you're going to get hacked and that passport data is going to be stolen. If I send you a cryptographic proof that I'm over 18 that you can verify, then we're good. What do you think is going to happen then if banks don't confront the, the kind of digital identity crisis? Well, the, the, you know, I mean, I, I have a fervent hope that eventually banks will get their act together and cooperate to, to solve this. I do think that would be the best solution. But I think it's got to the point now where if they don't, you, you have other big players who could step into that market to, I mean, it could be the big retailers or the big media companies or, or, or maybe specialists in that area. But I, I just feel, I, I personally as a consumer would be, feel more comfortable if it was a regulated financial institution that was, that was storing my personal information safely and then distributing the proofs that I need to people that I'm going to interact with online. Just coming back to that, uh, your, your session from yesterday, the, you know, which you, know, you said was, was part of the Legal to Legal yeah, Summit, yeah. you talked about cannabis and gambling yeah, and adult no, it was services. Yeah. Was there any particular highlight for you, that, you know, from some of the other talks? I, I thought it was interesting to me, that's why I made that point about Dogecoin earlier, was I thought there'd be more talk about using cryptocurrencies in that area, but actually 
what a lot of people are looking at is account to account. I mean, they're looking at how can we use, I mean, in, in the European context, how can we use separate credit transfer or faster payments or, you know, coming soon in the US Fed now. So actually a lot of people are looking at, if I know who you are and I can use open banking to instruct a transfer from your account, we solve an awful lot of problems. And so, yeah, it was interesting to me. A lot of people were talking about account to account. Sure. And, you know, listening to all these things that you're talking about, we're seeing less and less cash being used. Yeah. Do you think we'll get to a point one day where, you know, there will be no physical cash, everything is, is digital? I, I'm, I'm very fond of saying that a cashless society isn't a society in which there's literally no cash. You're, you're always going to want to pin something on the bride's dress at a wedding. Um, but a cashless society is a society in which cash is irrelevant. And, and actually, you know, it, we're not too far away from that in some ways, which is not an excuse for not doing something about it and yeah. having a strategy. But um, I know I haven't used cash since I've been here. No. I mean, I will tonight in the casino. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like for an yeah. awful lot of people, cash, it just isn't part of their daily lives yeah. anymore. Don't use too much of it. <laughs> um, before I let you go, uh, outside of the session that you were in yesterday, what's been your kind of key takeaway from Money 2020 this year? My key takeaway is they should rename it Identity 2020. Interesting. Because you look around, you look at all the stands. What are you looking at? You know, SoCure, Ikata, Jumia. I mean, I'm just from where I'm standing here, you know, you're looking at people that are trying to deal with the real problem. And the real problem is identity. That's a great, uh, great point to, to finish on. Dave Birch, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Russell. So I'm now joined by uh, Jess Holgrave, Head of Crypto uh, Strategy at Checkout.com. Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, now, you were speaking at the conference um, on a talk that focused on the growth of crypto within payments. Tell us a little bit about what you spoke about and what were the like, key highlights? So I think crypto has long been kind of promised as this thing that can support payments, right? Even within the Bitcoin white paper, we had the notion of like pure peer-to-peer -peer payment transactions. And so the industry for a while has been kind of asking what's happening there. And that's so yesterday was a panel that was really focused about like, yes, it's the promise, but like what's really happening out there. Um, and for me, I think there's a couple of different things. Like we touched a little bit on B2B payments. We have a, a checkout.com. We've got a nascent stablecoin settlement product. So we um, can settle our merchants using stablecoins. Great example there of the like efficiency gains that you can get by using crypto rails. We touched a bit on the panel about crypto acceptance, like people actually paying for goods and services with cryptocurrency. One thing that I'm super excited about is like crypto payouts. So like for creators, gig economy workers, cross-border transactions. So there's all these different areas that crypto can and, and I think will, they, will one day be used in payments. It's just about sort of how it's emerging and, and what those sort of trends are today. Good engagement from the audience. Great engagement from the audience. Uh, my co-panelist was um, a woman called May Zabner from uh, PayPal. She's building all their kind of crypto products. She's awesome. Um, Hugh, who was moderating the panel from CNBC. So it was a lively conversation uh, and, a, and a great audience. I mean, the energy here this week is just awesome. Now, now there has been some recent volatility in the crypto space. What, what's your thoughts on that? Look, I think um, I've been in crypto for a while, so I've seen these things come and go. And um, for me, the key difference actually in this crypto winter is that um, the institutions who are thinking about this are thinking about it in a much more sophisticated way than they were before. Before we had a lot of conflation between like crypto as an asset, as an investable uh, asset, versus the technology that, that it that underlies it. And today, those conversations are really focused on the technology use cases. Um, and that means that despite the fact that it is crypto winter, 
everybody's still like thinking about what they can build. They're really excited about the future. I think there's so many crypto people here at, Ch at, at Money 2020. There is. Um, <laughs> but like that's testament to the fact that people believe in, in this space and that there's still like great work being built. So yeah, it, the, the price of Bitcoin might be a bit low right now, but like, does, does that matter? No, I think like for now it's like focus. This is when the kind of good work gets sure. done. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay about that. Well, let, let's focus on the, on the future then. Let, you know, any particular trends that you're seeing and, and how do you actually see the whole sector evolving? So I think one of the great things about crypto is that it comes from a place of like this open source mentality, right? And we see that because there's so many like different partnerships that are emerging in this space that allow people to build and innovate really quickly. So um, I think having that like breadth and collaboration within the industry, I think is something that's definitely going to kind of persist through 2023. And what that means is that people can kind of focus on what they're good at, partner with people to support their, their innovation and like actually get some products to market. So I think on the payment side, we'll start seeing more crypto products in market from ourselves, also from our kind of friends at other places. Um, and these are great experiments to see what then like the future, the future might hold. Um, from a market perspective, if I knew, uh, I'd probably be sat on a beach somewhere. Uh, no one knows when, it's, when the market will come back, but I think people believe that it will. Um, and so that's something that we're focused on. We, you know, we work with a lot of exchanges in this space, so we're really focused right now on just helping them to make sure they got the right payment stack so that when the market comes back, they can kind of take advantage of that. So I'm optimistic for 2023. I also think we're going to get more regulatory clarity on some aspects next year, and I okay. think that will help innovation too. And tell us a little bit about your Demystifying Crypto report then. So Demystifying Crypto is a report that we put out earlier this year. Um, that did a whole survey. We surveyed 30,000 consumers, wow. okay. 3,000 different merchants um, to kind of just get a general feel for how they were thinking about crypto, crypto within payments, other use cases, NFTs. It was really broad and comprehensive. And it showed up some really interesting things. I think for me, what it showed was that, again, coming back to this like idea of sophistication, a lot of merchants had a really sophisticated understanding of crypto and what it could do for their business. Like 67% of CFOs said it was going to, like, drastically transform their business model. And I think that that's right. So it's really interesting to, to sort of see some of these stats, uh, these stats emerging. We're uh, about to kick off another one so that we can kind of give people another view for next year. So that'll be interesting. Uh, we've just done a mini one. So um, we're launching a kind of more, like rather than every year, we're gonna do some mini surveys a bit more frequently. And we've just done that. And that's been really interesting too. And my favorite stat from that one is as a preview is that in the US, um, in February, about 20% of the consumers that we surveyed said that they would be interested in being paid their salary in crypto. Really? And wow. in this survey, it's 46%. Okay. So it's like, it's, it's like this, it's real. Like people are yeah. genuinely thinking about this, um, really which is super interesting. It's a lot lower in the UK, interestingly. Um, so it's also shows us these like geographic differences in terms of adoption and how people are thinking about it. I find this data stuff really what, interesting. Where can the listeners grab those reports? I guess on the website? So you can download Demystifying Crypto from checkout.com website. Um, the new Pulse is coming out uh, in a little while, so that'll also be on the website when it's, when it's ready and on our Twitter and stuff like that. Just a couple more questions for you, uh, Jess. You've recently announced your stablecoin settlement solution. Tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, at checkout, we process for a lot of crypto exchanges, platforms, on and off ramps. We're really sort of 
a, a widespread provider in the space and what we do is the fiat component. So we allow those merchants to accept card and alternative payment methods. So just like when you as a consumer, you go onto a store and you buy a pair of shoes with your debit card, you can go onto an exchange and you can buy crypto with your debit card. Now, in a normal settlement flow, what happens is that we aggregate all of those funds from Visa and MasterCard and other payment providers, um, and then we settle them to the merchant every day using a bank transfer. Stablecoin settlement is like just looking at that leg of the transaction, and instead of making a bank transfer, what we do is we send you stablecoins. Um, now, very small, but actually when you think about what that the effect that that has on the business, it's really impactful, and it's impactful for two reasons. Number one, we can do that on the weekends, and we can do that on bank holidays, and so we're no longer constrained by the like nine to five yeah. banking hours that we all find very painful, but we can settle you whenever you want. And the impact of that is that that unlocks a lot of liquidity for, the, for, for our merchants. So instead of having to wait until Monday, Tuesday to get those funds, you get them much, much quicker. You get them on Saturday, Sunday, on bank holiday, Monday. Um, and that means that that can then roll into, into your business. So big liquidity advantage um, in terms of that stablecoin settlement product. Also on the operational side, it just removes this leg of operations that you have to do to change fiat into crypto to put it back into your business model. So two kind of key drivers and we've seen a lot of adoption from our, um, from our crypto merchants. Uh, we recently hit the billion dollars um, settled mark, lots of new kind of um, activities going on there. So great kind of mini but first, uh, first product in the kind of crypto native space for checkout and it, it's, it's working well. I'm loving your passion for what you do for a living. It's, 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 no, it's great. I love it. I have the best job in the world. <laughs> um, final question for you. What's been your key takeaway from Money 2020 this year? I think that my key takeaway has been um, that people are taking this like very, very seriously now. Um, and what I mean by that is that there's a lot of... In terms of, of cri the crypto side. The crypto side, yeah. Side, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm always, everything is going to be crypto here. Um, is is that I had so many requests for meetings from companies that I... I would never have thought that they're really starting to think about this stuff. And then the meetings that I've taken, the questions haven't been like, oh, we're just thinking about Web3 and crypto payments. They're like, this is what we want to do. And like, how, how should we be doing it? And how should we be thinking about it? And we've got 30 people working on these projects internally. And so it's for me, it's just like really cool to see some of this actually happening. Um, and I think that a lot of that's happening behind the scenes at the moment, but we'll start seeing the benefits of that in the next 12, 18, 24 months. And then that will also trickle down to different consumer models, innovative business models that like we haven't been able to do before, um, new ways of engaging with consumers from like NFTs and different branding perspectives. So I've got a lot of energy from this week. It's been awesome. Sounds very positive. Uh, listen, Jess Holgrave, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I'm now joined by Simon Taylor, Head of Content Strategy at Sardine. Uh, Simon, I know you've had a very busy morning already. You've, uh, you, you're part of a session with FTX's Brett Harrison. Yeah. Um, you were discussing the future of crypto and Web3. How did that go? It went really well, actually. He's now the former president of FTX. Oh, okay. So it was kind of interesting to hear from somebody who's like left that business. Uh, so as you're probably aware, FTX is a very large crypto exchange who's been acquiring lots of other companies lately. And it was interesting to get his perspective on with the crypto market being down, with people being generally sort of a bit less excited about Web3, some of the hype dying away, you know, 
why was he leaving and what was next for him? And I think his answer was really telling, which is when everybody else is fearful, be greedy. And when everybody else is greedy, be fearful. Like actually now is a really good time to be looking at this space because the tourists have gone. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting perspective. And um, we covered everything from compliance to regulation to the future of the industry, DeFi, stable coins, you named it. It was a wide ranging conversation and very fun. Interesting, obviously, in this environment, are consumers ready for these services? Define these services. I think, are consumers ready for crypto? Well, it depends what the value proposition is. Um, if the value proposition is speculative asset that may go up, I mean, always, you know, pe people like to gamble. But if the value is uh, sort of, you may have seen Reddit launched um, their NFT collection, and there's over 3 million users of that NFT collection, uh, that's a really incredible adoption. But the average price is about $10. So what we're starting to see now is we're flipping from this speculative games bubbles phase into this sort of utility phase. So ultimately, are you ready for it? Well, does it solve a problem for you? Is it good? Um, were consumers ready for Facebook and Instagram? Well, it's the, yes, they were and they adopted it. And ultimately, the consumer will prove out to, to, to adopt what they like and ignore what they don't. But there is some debate that you know, people will see this as you know, potentially a fad and whether or not it's going to replace traditional financial institu institutions. What's your take on, on all that? I don't think the goal should ever be to replace right. traditional financial institutions. The mobile phone hasn't replaced telcos. It's changed their business dramatically. And I think a new technology changes your business dramatically. And what people often try and do is make a thing that looks a bit like it. If you remember the telco industry reacted to Apple and Google entering the phone market by trying to do their own version of voice over IP, but now we all use Zoom. And so the telco companies are there in the background and they've had to upgrade their infrastructure to be able to be a part of that, and they continue to be very successful businesses. Same's true for banks. The goal is not to replace them. The goal is to meaningfully build new infrastructure that can solve problems for the world in, in different ways. And uh, one of the things we talked about with Brett was, for example, stable coins. This is a, a naughty word to some regulators, a naughty word to some bankers, but if you're in the global south, if you're in Brazil, if you're in Africa, the ability to hold and transact in dollars is really exciting and, and really, really powerful, and they can move money in, in and out. So do we see this really meaningfully being another avenue for remittances and for cross-border trade at the consumer level for low-value payments? I think the answer to that could be yes. Tell us a little bit about Sardine. Sardine is the world's best fraud team you hire as an API. Um, customers would include FTX, Brex, MoonPay, Wire, uh, and even MetaMask. Uh, we do several things. So uh, when I talk about a fraud team, uh, I'm really thinking about everything from helping companies uh, KYC and onboard customers. So we provide all of the software solutions that allow somebody to be able to uh, accept a digital identity. We'll also check for fraud in the digital identity. Then once the customer's onboarded, we look for things like account funding fraud. So I'm a neobank, I've launched a new account. Um, when that money's coming into the account, we're making sure that that's coming from legitimate sources. And we're doing all of the transaction monitoring, all of the case management that sits around that, um, that, that kind of sits there. And so that's available to, to their internal fraud teams. And then lastly, uh, we also do card issuing fraud. So when somebody's spending at the point of sale, um, and we're looking at everything from the device, the user's behavior, uh, all of those signals to be able to pull together the best fraud prevention and detection in the world. Uh, and then that's one part of the business. 
The second part of the business is the um, instant fiat to crypto or instant NFT checkout. So you're probably familiar with the US market. Um, ACH is a two day delay. We will allow the user of MetaMask, for instance, or uh, the Brave Wallet to instantly send money from their bank account via ACH to uh, receive crypto. And that will happen immediately uh, instead of a two day delay. What we've seen with cards is that there's about a 50% decline rate. So you have a coin toss as to whether or not the transaction is going to go through. Um, but with uh, ACH and with our fraud prevention technology, we're able to get that to much more likely uh, a 95% approval rate. And that's why we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, energy and excitement around the product. Now, I mentioned you had a busy uh, morning. This is, uh, you know, as well as your session, this is not the first podcast uh, you've done. Tell us about the interview that, the, that you've just come from. Yeah, I was on the Deciphered podcast. Okay. Uh, which with, uh, was with the Bain guys, and they were phenomenal. We talked about everything. Uh, we talked about the macro environment and how that's going to impact uh, consumer fintech in particular, um, and how that how that's sort of changed the market. Interest rates have risen um, for a time. That means that the banks are doing quite well. Um, their net interest margins have raised. You know, the the amount they're paying savers versus the amount they're they're sort of charging in loans has changed. But it's not that simple because they're also not necessarily signing as many mortgages as they used to be. So there are less peak customers coming through the door for lending products. On the consumer fintech side, the, some of the big valuations and big multiples that we saw are a little bit harder to justify in this market. And maybe they have to take a down round. Maybe they have to start thinking about their costs. Maybe they have to start thinking about unit economics, which is just good business fundamentals and probably should have always been the case, um, but is now starting to really come back to reality. So uh, it was a really great conversation. Um, Simon, final question for you. Key takeaway from Money 2020 this year? Uh, when everybody else is fearful, be greedy. Um, I've never been more excited by some of the young fintech companies I'm seeing. Never, ever, ever. Like, it's, it's absolutely insane. There was a great competition called America's Got Access that the Money 2020 folks organized. Um, and businesses building to compete with payday lenders, businesses building to um, really sustainably lend to the subprime sector in ways that are not just, I always say lending is easy, getting paid back is hard. This is really thoughtful in terms of like, how do I use communities? Uh, how do I use credibility and societies to start to think about uh, different ways of underwriting? Simon Taylor, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, so joining me now is Ginny Chappell, EVP uh, Product Marketing at Move Financial. Ginny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, now. You sat down earlier today uh, for a session with Christopher Waller. Um, he is from the Federal Reserve. Um, what was your reaction when you were told that you're going to be interviewing him here? You know, it is honestly a top honor of my career to be able to meet him, talk to him, and ask him, you know, all the burning questions. Just kidding. I can only cover so much in, in the 20-minute session, but obviously have been on this journey for... 18 years in the industry, but certainly in the last seven to 10 years, very focused on faster payments. And with, you know, what the Fed is is doing now, it's, it's really groundbreaking. So, and he doesn't honestly do interviews. No. Like it was his first many 2020. And so just incredible that during this sort of 
truly a blackout period for them to, yeah. to go out and do public speaking that he would give us the time to well, really I'm, talk about payments. Well, I'm yeah. going to challenge you now because you said you could only talk about so much in 20 minutes. I'm now going to ask you to summarize. Just give us the highlights of, you know, the overview of what you discussed with him. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're coming out with a service that is really going to enable real-time, you know, payments in the United States. And of course, we've struggled over the last several years to get a ubiquitous network in place. And I think it's it's coming to fruition with uh, speed, um, finally. Um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, right, for all of the fintechs and, you know, the financial institutions out there that have been investing in all kinds of different technologies to modernize our payments infrastructure. And so the Fed is just uniquely positioned now, I think, to, to make that available and create a whole host of you know, new capabilities and use cases that are going to empower small businesses and consumers in, in really exciting ways. And so he talked quite a bit about that and, and did share, I think, you know, where they are. And of course, they came out with a, a white paper, which I encourage everybody to, to read into um, just just recently. And so, yeah, he he kept it brief, but uh, and didn't get into any of the juicy details of um, kind of monetary policy. But uh, it was just an honor to, to get to talk to him and for him to come out and, and talk to the whole industry. I mean, there is a period of economic uncertainty. Did he you know, share any plans to get out of that at all? We didn't go there, but I think we connected um, in the sense that, you know, he had a really distinguished career even before, uh, in academia, before taking on this role in the last couple of years and is doing an incredible job of, of driving progress. I think he was also, uh, we connected in the sense that he uh, was faculty at Indiana University, which is my, uh, where I went to school. So, you know, just really cool to for industry I think to come together yeah. with policymakers and we're starting to see that more um, and so I think that just the conversation and the engagement for um, the private sector right meeting with policymakers I think is an exciting shift that's really starting to happen there's events like DC FinTech week a couple weeks ago um, that was put on and, and these types of interviews taking place where it's not just fintechs, right, um, in the dialogue, I think is really, it's really important and was honored to be a part of it. That's so. good stuff. Um, let's bring it back to, to MOVE. Um, on your website, I've seen the, the, the statement, every company will become a fintech. What's your interpretation of that quote? You know, I believe that was uh, one of the themes last year from one of our board members, right. um, uh, Angela Strange from uh, A16. So, you know, I think we're seeing a massive shift in growth um, for software companies that are looking to really embed and make invisible the payments and commerce experience. And so, you know, lots of companies are, are looking at how do we make this easier? And, and that's certainly part of our mission. How do we make just literally move money, right? The name says it all, right? Yep. Um, how do we make it easier to move money for tech companies and software companies and ultimately the end users and consumers that are just, they just want to make payments and receive payments and they, you know, want to have card and, and you know, real time, bank rails, everything all available um, in one. And that's really part of our mission. So I think 
everyone, right, commerce is unavoidable now, and we're all in our mobile apps, we're all online, and I think that shift and that growth um, is something that payments needs to catch up to. Final question for you, Ginny. Uh, obviously, you've had a great um, you know, morning doing your interview, but any other key highlights, any key takeaways that, you know, you know, for you from Money 2020? Yeah, you know, this is an incredible conference. I think I said earlier, it's like the Super Bowl for payments <laughs> nerds. Um, so, you know, I haven't done the full walk around, but I just, it's, it's incredible what's happening with the shift to digital payments. I think that's been a theme I've been seeing and it just continues to become true. I've been trying to kill the check for, I think most of my career, it hasn't happened. It's, we're still not there, but I think it's exciting to see all of the new technologies and, you know, even just kind of cloud and open source and, you know, things that our, our company is focused on and, and the industry is focused on this convergence of banking and financial services and technology modernization. So I think that's really what's happening across the board. And there is this new emergence, I think, of, of better tools for compliance and fraud and risk management, all really important things that have just sort of been lumped into the banking sector that are really starting to come, uh, I think a realization of how important those things are for fintechs and technology companies to partner in and leverage that. So lots of interesting new technologies and new capabilities around that to create safety and security in the, in the ecosystem. That's so, a great summary. Yeah. Ginny Chappell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So joining me now, we've got Jan Altersten, um, CEO of Riverty. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Should we start with a quick introduction to your business? Yeah, I'll happily do so. I'm happy to be here on the conversation, Russell. Riverty is a fintech focusing on the consumer, where we take on the accountability for the entire transactional cycle around the consumer. So from credit check into whatever payment method, buy now, pay later, into the collection piece, should that be necessary. And we do this in various life areas in the ecosystems that matters to consumers. And when you say fintech, you might think of a small startup. We're not. We're a company with a 40-year-old history and we're 5,000 employees active in 13 countries and we wow. used to be known under another brand about the financial solutions, but we just rebranded it to Riverty. Well, I want, I want to ask you about that. Can, can you talk about any of the merchants that you provide the services for? Yeah, sure. There's an array of merchants. Some of them you can mention, others not, but we... ASOS in the way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sure. ASOS is a big one that okay. we're working together with. The Secret is another one. You might know of the car provider, Lincoln Co., that has made their point out of having subscriptions on the car. You cannot really buy it up front. We're servicing them as well. And there is a lot of others. So clearly, if you're a company our size, you would have the entire range of uh, clients from the big multinational brands all the way to the, to the small startups that just are establishing themselves. Okay, now you touched on it just a second ago. You've gone through a rebrand. Keen to find out a little bit more about that. Talk us through that. Yeah, you, sure. There was a number of different companies or brands involved before. We had there? an array of brands. Okay. Corporate brands, product brands, company brands, you name it. And we concluded that most of this was for historic reasons, either from M&A, so that we were running a specific product in a specific direction. And we have reached the end of the road with running these businesses in, in separate streams. And we decided to really focus under one, um, not just an umbrella, but under one brand showing who we are and where we're headed with this consumer-centric approach. So this is why we wanted to project our vision into, into one brand. So one company, one team, one brand, where we were a bit more fragmented before. Um, again, you just mentioned this um, 
buy now, pay later, mm -hmm. something that you're obviously very involved in. Yes. Um, I get the feeling you've got some opinions on that. Yeah, I certainly <laughs> do. So buy now, pay later is for sure yeah. the big part of our business, but it's not the only part of our business, and we make a point out of that. I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation here that, for instance, debt collection is also something we do. And I think that's something which we don't talk enough about, that when there is buy now, pay later, when there is a gap between the transaction and the actual payment, there will be some people defaulting with their payments, and that will lead to debt collection. And in our case, we have said to you, to be a good BNPL provider, you just cannot shy away from that topic. And you need to take on the full accountability for the entire transactional cycle around the consumer. This is when you can talk about sustainable finance, being human-centric, etc., to help people back into the ecosystems that matters to them and make sure this is within your control, this is within your area of responsibility and within your area of action. And I think that's an, an, a discussion, a conversation we really should have a bit more intensely now, especially with the macro environment. We have a lot of consumers facing difficult times. In, in essence, I think Buy now, pay later is a, is a beautiful tool in so many ways, but to not admit that there are flip sides is just not productive, it's no. just not constructive. Good point. Um, another area that you're focusing on is embedded finance. Some mm -hmm. interesting case studies that you can share in there as well? Yeah, I think I mentioned uh, in the beginning of our conversation as well that we're working with Lincoln Co., this, this car manufacturer that sell more of a service. You, you, you do not buy a car up front, you buy a subscription on a car, which in itself for sure is a modern business model. But then they also concluded that this is really not enough to build a truly sustainable business model. So they said, why don't we add a marketplace where those subscribers can offer the car they are subscribing to towards other consumers to, to not only reduce the cost, but also increase the usage of that car. And as and I think this is this is truly beautiful. Most of the cars are standing still 90% of their time. Why don't you make them available for more people? That's that's a really sustainable approach. And we are helping them uh, to facilitate the payments beneath all of this, the payments in the marketplace, etc. And those are typically uh, modern business applications that we are deeply investigating and, and exploring. On top of that, I could mention the, uh, parking and other area within the mobility where we're going quite heavily into the automatic number plate recognition connected to the payment, meaning you as a consumer, you don't need to, need to produce an app or, or swipe your card in a machine or anything, you just drive into a garage with no bars and then you drive out and we will aggregate those transactions, connect that to your car via the number plate and, and uh, invoice you by the end of the month. That's another embedded finance activity we're quite enthusiastic about. That's a great example. Um, yeah, and I've got one final question for you. And um, we've been asking everyone this in terms of their key takeaways from Money 2020. Mm -hmm. You've probably had more time to have a wander around and see what's going on because you haven't been speaking uh, here and you don't have a booth here. So I'm going to you know, get you to uh, give us you know, your big takeaway from what you've seen mm -hmm. you know, wandering around the expo and listening to all the various different talks. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the sustainable finance conversations okay. that are going on both from the big stage as well as uh, in, in some of the, the uh, breakout sessions. I, I think that seems to be a big thing. Another, another observation I made walking around here is how big 
this e-identification is becoming, how, how to ensure that you, that you know who you're doing business with. There are such an array of companies trying to solve that problem. Yeah. And I think that's uh, another big topic this year. And the third reflection is that crypto is not as hot as it used to oh, be. Oh, interesting. I mean, there's, there's for sure, a lot of some um, of our other guests may may have a different I opinion. I think they do. There is a lot of buzz, yeah. but if you ask for the actual use cases and if you try to drill a bit deeper under the surface, it becomes more a discussion of infrastructure than than crypto okay. use cases, right? And, and you also see that it's still more of an asset than a payment method, right. and I think that's very interesting. We'll have to pick that up on another conversation. I'm but, sure um, we will. For, yeah, for, for now, Jan Olsen, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode from Money 2020 US. So thanks again to all my guests who took the time to chat with us over the last couple of days and to the team at Banking Circle for partnering with us and hosting us here on their booth. Um, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on any of the topics we've covered. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, uh, you can do that on our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn and Instagram pages. They're all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. Uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well. Um, or, of course, you can connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.